Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to the Latin American History Podcast, Episode 33, Tierra Firme, Part 4. At the end of last episode, Balboa had just been given permission by the king to found a new colony. He had been replaced as governor of the main colony on the American mainland by a man named Davila. Davila had turned out to be a poor governor, and he did not like Balboa one bit. The territory awarded to Balboa was the South Sea which he had discovered, today called the Pacific. Rather than retrace his steps to the place he'd been before, he chose to colonise a different part of the South Sea, however. He went to a region that was being called Dubaibi, south of the colony on today's Colombian Pacific coast, in the department of Choco. There were the usual rumours of gold-rich cities in the area, and this was probably at least part of the reason Balboa chose it. For the first time, however, he was to experience failure. He set off in July 1515 with 190 men. He also had boats with him, as they had found a river which emptied into the Gulf of Araba on the Caribbean coast, but which went down towards the Pacific and his intended destination. The plan was to sail upriver, but after a while, it proved to be impassable. He found the capital village of the Dabibe Cacique, but it was empty and not full of gold. He also found that the area was suffering from a swarm of locusts, which had destroyed the indigenous people's crops, and this left Balboa's party struggling to feed themselves. He was faced with a problem. If he went any further he would have to leave a significant portion of his force behind to guard the boats, and this would leave both parts of the force vulnerable to attack. Balboa saw the writing on the wall, and he gave up. It had not been a costly failure, but Davila would have been delighted. Within a month, Balboa was back in Santa Maria. A few months later, in November, Davila decided to set off on an expedition of his own. This would be the first time he had actively led a major exploration trip. A small party led by a Spaniard named Becerra had previously gone to the Gulf of Uraba and into Colombia, but they had not been heard of since. Davila was going to look for him. His party included 250 men, 12 mounted officers, two captains for the ships as the journey started with a short hop down the coast, and three priests. Once they arrived, they quickly learned from the locals that Becerra 
had been ambushed and his group wiped out. Davila limited his revenge to the burning of a village before promptly getting back on his boats and leaving. He didn't return to Santa Maria, however. Instead, he sailed past it, as he had heard of trouble in the territory of Caretta. Caretta was one of the ethnic groups to the north of the settlement, which Balboa had brought into the colony as a puppet state. Its leader, Chima, had been the one who had converted to Christianity and given Balboa a daughter, but who had later been involved in an attempted uprising. Balboa had forgiven him, judging him more useful as leader of Caretta than whoever would have replaced him. Now, Chima had been replaced anyway, through a civil war. The war had been between Chima and his brother. The former leader was now dead. His capital village had seen the worst of the fighting, and had been renamed Akla, which in the local language meant place of bones, due to the high number of casualties. Chima's son was officially the new ruler, but being in his early teens, real power lay with a regent. Davila wanted to ensure that these changes hadn't affected Coretta's attitude towards the Spaniards. He landed at the village where Chima's son was based, and held a feast to introduce himself and maintain good relations. He then took the young cacique back with him to be educated by monks in the settlement. That way, he would grow up Europeanized and Christianized, while also being protected from any intrigues. This trip seems to have largely been about settling small pieces of business and giving Davila a chance to see his territory with his own eyes. Davila was about 70 by this point, and his years of roughing it while making new explorations were over. While his mind was still as sharp as ever, and he had ambition to match, it seems that even this small trip was too much for him, and at Coretta he fell ill. He had planned more stops, but had to return to Santa Maria instead. Perhaps his illness contributed to the knee-jerk reaction he is about to engage in. I have also seen it written that the recent failure of another expedition, led by a man named Badajoz, may have angered him and shortened his temper. In truth, though, he probably didn't need these factors to come down hard on Balboa. He just needed an excuse. Balboa had just given him one although it was a tenuous one. While Balboa had his own governorship, the governorship of the South Sea, as yet there was nothing there to govern. There were no settlements, no farms and no population. The catch-22 was that to build these things, he needed men. He had none of his own, and the only man who could give them to him was Davila. Since he had failed in his first attempt to build a colony, Davila had refused to provide them. Officially, the reason was that there was a shortage of men in the colony, so none could be spared, and this may well have been true to a certain extent, but it was also a way of preventing Balboa from getting established. Hopefully, he never would. There are a couple of interesting things to point out here. Firstly, this is another example of conquistador personal rivalry taking precedence over the interests of Spain and the king. Balboa had been given permission to settle new lands, and surely the sooner it was done, the better for Spain, as their claim to the area would be turned into something concrete, and whatever benefits could be gained from the new settlement would start enriching the country sooner. Of course, Davila didn't care about that, 
He just wanted to prevent Balboa getting any more power, and hopefully even get the South Sea Territory for himself one day. The second point is made by Kathleen Romilly, a historian who has written a biography of Balboa, which has been a very useful resource for writing these episodes. She points out that Davila's colony occupied a tiny fraction of the land awarded to him. All he had was the settlement of Santa Maria and a few subservient caciques. In practical terms, he had unlimited land at his disposal. His problem was making use of it, not a lack of it. His desire to remove Balboa from the governorship of the South Sea was obviously then purely personal. Balboa was not standing in his way, and there was room for both of them. He just did not want to see Balboa succeed. Anyway, as Davila had refused to provide him with men to leave for his own colony, Balboa decided to recruit them elsewhere. He had sent a man to Hispaniola to recruit, and the man had now returned with 60 men. I'm unsure of the specifics of 16th century colonial Spanish law, so I cannot say whether he had any real legal justification for his actions. But Davila used this opportunity to accuse Balboa of attempted rebellion and conspiracy. He had him arrested, and afraid of the outcry this might cause among the population, he had Balboa held in his own mansion rather than the local jail. Relations between the two had never been good, but now they must have been at their worst. Remarkably, however, they would soon be at their best. Details of this chapter in the rivalry of Balboa and Davila are unfortunately scarce. How this happened is anyone's guess, but after a couple of months, Davila relented and released Balboa. What's more, the two seem to have decided to work together. In a short space of time, Balboa went from being Davila's prisoner to being married to his daughter, although Davila will later claim that they were only engaged when normal services resumed and the two were fighting again. Davila even started referring to Balboa as son. Now how all this happened is the unclear part. Perhaps Davila had some scheme in mind. Perhaps Balboa simply managed to charm him, as he so often did. Or perhaps Davila really did decide that both their interests would be better served as friends. I have also read that the king may have been involved in some way. However, given the short time frame that this all happened in, and the time it would have taken to get word back to Spain, and then back to the colony, this seems unlikely. A plan was drawn up, which would allow Balboa to finally take up his governorship and found a new settlement. It came with conditions, however, which may suggest that at least on Davila's side, this new friendship was not completely altruistic. Balboa would be allowed 80 men for his new expedition, and 60 of those were the ones that he'd brought over himself from Hispaniola. There was also a time frame within which the business would have to be done, and this would make things quite tight. It would be tight because Davila first required Balboa to go to Acla, a.k.a. Coretta, to found a settlement on his behalf. Since Davila's visit, a small company of soldiers had been killed there, and so it needed pacifying. What's more, as Balboa had discovered on his way to the Pacific, Acla was more important than merely being a nearby territory. It sat at the entrance to the pass through the mountains, and was therefore on the route to that other ocean. It would need to be firmly in control, 
either by puppet cacique or directly, if the Spanish were to exploit the South Sea. They couldn't have soldiers being killed on an important part of what they hoped would soon be a well-travelled road. While it would eat into the time that Balboa had been allotted to found his colony, his business at Akla was fairly simple. There was no resistance to his work, and it seemed to have gone ahead without issue. In fact, Balboa seems to have done an excellent job, and Akla quickly came to resemble Santa Maria in terms of size and amenities. The colony was expanding then. It now had a sister settlement, and Santa Maria itself was growing. Its roads had been improved, so that they were no longer just tracks. The road to the harbour had received special attention, and carts could now comfortably bring goods to and from the ships. Buildings were still made of wood and had thatched roofs, but some had grown to be two floors high. The population had not grown much, it still stood around 600, and, at any point in time, much of the population would have been away, either working on the new settlement at Akla, or out on small exploratory trips. The cleared farmland surrounding the settlement had grown, however, and it now sprawled a significant distance inland. On this, there were imported cows, sheep, goats and pigs, but beside grapes, which the settlers had somehow managed to make bear fruit in the tropical climate, the vegetable crop was largely local. Amongst other things, corn, yucca and pineapples were grown. Native animals were also hunted, and the Spanish experimented with eating tapir, guinea pig and even manatee. First-hand accounts discuss the bemused reactions of the Spanish when they first encountered these strange creatures. They also talk about mysterious mythical beasts which were sighted in jungles surrounding the settlement. While Balboa was busy in Acla, various Spaniards were exploring his territory. While they wouldn't have been able to colonise it without his permission, as it was still part of the larger colony, they could go off and explore it. These were proving to be quite profitable. Several Spaniards returned from Balboa's governorship with gold and other riches plundered there. Balboa then was getting increasingly itchy to get started. In March 1517, judging that he had done his job in Acla, he returned to Santa Maria so that he could get started on his own colony. It had been two and a half years since he had been awarded his governorship, and he still hadn't managed to even see it. In Santa Maria, he managed to pick up some more men, making his force a bit more respectable. Not among their number was Leoncito, Balboa's dog, who had been with him since he first stowed away in the barrel. Leoncito had then accompanied Balboa on all his adventures to date, but he had apparently been poisoned by one of Balboa's enemies. That seems a low move. Balboa had also managed to raise some more money for his expedition, forming a company, the South Sea Company, and persuading investors to put some money in. With everything ready, he set off in August 1517. I'm not sure why, but the conquistadors were unable to get the large number of indigenous porters that Balboa had possessed last time, so they were forced to do most of the heavy lifting themselves. Balboa himself apparently carried heavy wooden planks. Funnily enough, as it sat at the beginning of the only real route through the mountains, Balboa first had to return to Akla. 
From here, they continued on through Ponker's lands until they reached a river. Here they stopped, made a camp, and started building boats that would take them down to the coast. This did not go smoothly, however, and a flash flood washed away much of their material and the half-built boats. Balboa called a meeting to decide how to deal with this, and it was decided that he would go back to Akla to fetch more supplies. One of his men went to Santa Maria to request more time, as after being waylaid into building Akla, Balboa only had eight months left. His petition was successful, but only partially. It seems that despite their new friendship, Davila was still unwilling to give him any real help, and he only allowed him an extra four months. Better news came in the form of 40 new men that one of the investors had managed to recruit in Hispaniola. While all this was going on, the bulk of the men set about rebuilding their boats, and eventually they were completed. Their work did not end there, however, as the delay had meant a change in the season, and the river was now significantly lower. This required them to dig into the riverbed, enlarging it, and at times creating whole new channels for the water to flow down. Despite all of this, they made it down to the South Sea. Balboa had decided to make the Isles of Pearls his base. These were the islands he'd visited when he discovered the Pacific, and as well as hopefully finding pearls, he also thought that being islands, they would give him an extra degree of separation from the interference of Santa Maria and Davila. Several other Spaniards had been to the island since Balboa had first got there, and so, where before he found several caciques and a fairly large population, now the islands were close to uninhabited. The next few weeks were spent building more boats, while Balboa explored Panama's Pacific coastline. As this was going on, back in Spain, changes were afoot. I will be devoting a whole episode soon to events back in Spain, so I'll not go into them here, but the upshot was that things in the empire as a whole were uncertain, and that applied to the colony as well. Whenever there are changes, there is planning and strategizing as people try to work out what might happen and how best to deal with the changes. Davila seems to have been engaging in this, and he decided to call Balboa back to discuss things. There were also rumours that Davila might be replaced as governor of the colony. Of course, this wouldn't have made him happy, and probably set him off strategizing even further. Balboa decided to go. However, he sent some representatives ahead to try and assess the situation. He was, correctly as it turned out, suspicious of Davila's motives. On arrival in Akla, those representatives were arrested, although news of this did not reach Balboa. He set off soon afterwards, and was on his way when he suddenly encountered Francisco Pizarro with a group of armed soldiers. Pizarro advised him that he was under arrest for treason, and proceeded to take him back to Akla. Here he was held in the house of a local citizen, but was met by a population who made it clear that they supported him. Davila came to visit him twice. The first time he told him not to worry, and that he was just clearing up an allegation made by the colony's treasurer. The second time, however, he denounced him, saying that he was an enemy of the crown and had plotted a revolt. Davila's sudden and intense moves against Balboa 
can partially be explained. They had of course been rivals since the beginning, and despite their apparent recent friendship, it was clear that there was still mistrust between them. Davila was also worried about the larger political situation in the empire, and would have been making moves to secure his position. It still feels to me, however, that there must have been something more going on, some motive that we do not know about. Perhaps the fact that Balboa's colony was threatening to be a success contributed, although he hadn't even attempted to found a settlement yet. If he thought he could get away with it, surely Davila would have taken this course of action at many different points in the past. Relations between the two appear to have been worse plenty of times before. I guess what I'm saying is that I'm not surprised by Davila's actions, but it's not quite clear why he took them now. There was no major action on the part of Balboa that we can point to which Davila was reacting to. While the details of his motivations may be murky, his actions certainly were not. Alongside the treason charges, Davila also alleged that Balboa's current expedition had led to the death of hundreds of indigenous people due to poor planning. This does not seem to have been the case, and if anything, Balboa, while far from perfect, is a conquistador who has gone furthest out his way to get indigenous people on side with the carrot rather than the stick. We also know that the now long past events at the beginning of the colony were brought up, that is, the removal of Nicuesa and Enciso as governors. Unfortunately, though, the documents used to mount the case against Balboa are lost, as are the records of the trial. Perhaps this happened deliberately. We cannot, therefore, look at what specifically he was accused of having done. It seems likely that the charges were made up, and the intention was to get Balboa out of Davila's way once and for all. Perhaps, however, Balboa really had been planning something. Without the records, we cannot say. He was put on trial alongside six of his companions. It was over quickly, and all were found guilty, although one was acquitted afterwards. Davila had told the judge behind closed doors that he wanted the death sentence for Balboa, but this was actually against the laws of the colony. This put the judge in a difficult situation, as he would not have wanted to go against the governor, but he could potentially be held personally responsible for breaking the laws with his sentence. A whispered demand from Davila would be no protection from this. The judge therefore publicly referred the sentencing back to Davila. It was he who was now put in a difficult position, as he had been trying to pull the strings while keeping his name out of the official records of the trial. With no other choice, he pronounced the death sentence himself, and denied the prisoners the right to appeal. One of the accused was a priest, and thanks to his status he was sent back to Spain as a prisoner. Here he was quickly released, which adds weight to the argument that these charges were not completely genuine. The other four, including Balboa, were beheaded in January 1519. So after all his adventures, Balboa's story came to an abrupt end. What are we to make of him? He was certainly an ambitious man who threw himself into dangerous situations without a moment's hesitation. That he had lasted as long as he did is a bit of a miracle, although his abilities obviously helped him a lot. 
He could have died in any number of ways on one of his trips. He could have been imprisoned for his actions against Ojeda, Nicuesa, or Enciso. Or he could have suffered Davila's wrath long before he did. This was not the first time, after all, that Davila had imprisoned him. It is strange that he could have been caught out so many times by his daring schemes. But when he finally did get caught out, it seems not to have been through any particular fault of his own. He was also clearly an extremely talented diplomat, winning Spaniards and indigenous people over wherever he went. His own personal ethics also seem to have been a bit closer to our modern values than most people at the time. Although he participated in and expanded the colonial system, with all its structural inequalities against indigenous people, Africans and even poor Spaniards, he chose a less aggressive path than most of his contemporaries, time and again. Whatever else he was, he was an exciting character who makes for an unbelievable story and who achieved a huge amount in his lifetime. If an average person lived through just one of his adventures, they would be considered to have an unusual and exciting life. As for Davila, he lived to the ripe old age of 91. He was already fairly old when he came into our story, but he would have another 10 or so years in the colony. He would not get a comeuppance. He remained in his post as governor, just. There were indeed plans to replace him, but the man sent to do it died the very night of his arrival. Despite the suspicious coincidence, there was no foul play involved as far as we can tell. Madrid didn't bother sending anyone else, so Davila's position was safe, thanks to this bit of luck. Soon after the death of Balboa, he decided to explore territory to the west of the settlement. He founded a village and named it Panama. From these humble beginnings, modern Panama City would grow. Davila will not do anything else of note, so we will not be returning to him. His name will come up occasionally in future episodes, however, as his colony will be an important staging post for future conquests. Enciso returned to Spain soon after Balboa's death, and set about writing an account of the Spanish Empire in the Americas. He seems to have slipped into obscurity after this, probably living out the rest of his days in comforts in Spain. Eclipsed by Panama City, the settlement of Santa Maria will die before even Davila, the population gradually drifted to the new town. In 1524, the final nail in its coffin will come when local indigenous people burnt what remained of it to the ground. The wider region was now firmly established, and Spain now had a self-sufficient colony on the American mainland. When you think of the Spanish Empire and its most important parts, Panama probably doesn't come to mind first. Today, it's one of the lesser-known Latin American countries, eclipsed by places like Mexico, Peru and Argentina. As we have seen, however, it had an important role to play in the Spanish Empire. It's also ironic that the Darien, where Santa Maria was located, is now considered one of the most inhospitable places in the Americas. Crossing it from north to south is thought to be one of the most dangerous trips in the world, thanks to the jungles, animals, narco-traffickers and rebel groups who inhabit it. It's the only place in the Americas, from Alaska to Tierra del Fuego, that the Pan-American Highway does not traverse. Somehow, however, thanks largely to the efforts of Balboa, 
the Spanish managed to build a colony there and gain a foothold on the American mainland. It was from this inhospitable place that the rest of the continent was won. So that's it for this episode, and the story of Balboa and his colony. When I started this recent mini-series of exploration episodes, the idea was to take us up to around 1520, the time period we had covered in the history of the colony of Hispaniola. That is still the plan, although this mini-series has expanded to take up a few more episodes than I had initially thought. So far we have covered the first Andalusian journeys, the conquest of the big Caribbean islands, and now the mainland forays to the south of Hispaniola. The last area to cover is Spanish activity in the north. I am not going to go out on a limb this time and say that this will be covered in one episode. There are a few explorers to cover. Whether it takes one, two or three episodes, however, that will bring us up to date. And afterwards, we will have a look at what was going on back in Spain. Until next time, thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Latin American History Podcast. Written and recorded by Max Sargent. For more information, visit the website www.maxargent.com slash the history of Latin America. And that's spelt M-A-X-S-E-R-J-E-A-N-T. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to get in contact at History of Latin America Podcast at gmail.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching for the Latin American History Podcast. The Twitter handle is at History Latin AM. And if you've liked the show, you can help out by leaving a review on iTunes. Alternatively, if you visit the website, you'll see that each episode is accompanied by relevant photos. Most of these are my own, taken during my time in Latin America. All these photos and more are available to purchase as prints at my Etsy shop. You can find this at www.etsy.com slash photo. That's spelt www.etsy.com slash M-A-X-S-E-R-J-E-A-N-T photo. Thanks for listening. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.